My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with MacDonald Scott. Sometimes, in the course of political action, people get arrested. Of course, people get arrested all the time, in lots of different contexts in the course of everyday life, with certain communities particularly targeted for criminalization, harassment, and arrest. But police action, police violence, and arrest can also be an element of how the state responds to things like demonstrations, occupations, blockades, picket lines, and the like. There is a long history of lawyers and other legal workers who have progressive or radical politics acting in support or as part of social movements and communities in struggle, including by supporting people who have been targeted by police in the course of political action. In the United States, the National Lawyers Guild has brought progressive lawyers and legal workers together since the 1930s, and in Ontario, the Law Union of Ontario has done something similar since the 1970s. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, when the global justice movement was in full swing and there were mass protests in Seattle, Quebec City, and elsewhere, there was an upsurge in the formation of grassroots legal collectives. While the older lefty legal organizations had broader mandates, these collectives often focused on supporting people who faced legal troubles as a result of collectively taking the streets. In Ontario, the group that formed at this point was called the Common Front Legal Collective. McDonald Scott is a legal worker at the firm Carranza LLP, where he specializes in immigration law. He is a member of the Law Union of Ontario, and he joined the Common Front Legal Collective in 2004 when he moved back to Canada after being involved in a similar formation while he was living in the United States. And he was actively involved when the Common Front Legal Collective shifted form, became a committee of the Law Union, and changed its name to the Movement Defense Committee in 2007 or 2008. The lawyers, law students, legal workers, and activists of the Movement Defense Committee take on a number of movement-related roles. They do Know Your Rights workshops for activists and organizers. They do trainings for lawyers and legal workers who wish to become legal observers at protests. They produce various print and online resources to help activists and organizers understand the legal system. But the core of their work is support in the context of demonstrations. The committee encourages groups in Toronto to let them know in advance when they're holding a protest or some other collective mobilization that might be met with a police response. The committee is usually able to send at least one, sometimes several, legal observers to the action, and then they'll do their best to ensure that their phone line is on in case anyone is arrested. They're usually able to have a lawyer intervene with the police to try and negotiate the release of whoever's been arrested from the station that day, and failing that, they provide a free lawyer for the release hearing the next day. And subsequently, they do their best to connect people who want one with a movement lawyer who is lower cost or takes legal aid, and who can represent them for the remainder of their interaction with the legal system. When appropriate, they can also sometimes help arrestees organize themselves into their own collective defense committee. The committee averages about four or five demonstrations per month. 
During moments of heightened mobilization, they are of course more active. And during the G20 summit in Toronto in 2010, when tens of thousands of people were on the streets and police arrested more than a thousand demonstrators and bystanders, the committee was very involved in the legal support work. A key principle of the committee's work is that they are not neutral as a civil liberties organization would be, but rather regard themselves as a part of the movement. They work to adhere to anti-capitalist, anti-patriarchal, and broader anti-oppression principles. They operate by consensus. And they are clear that their role is not to dictate movement tactics, but to help activists and organizers understand the legal implications of their choices and to provide legal support when necessary and possible. They're also keen to help people in other cities set up their own movement defense committees. I speak with Scott about social movements and the legal system, and about the work of the Movement Defense Committee. My name is MacDonald Scott. I work for the law firm Carenza LLP doing immigration law, and I'm also a member of the Movement Defense Committee, which is a committee of the Law Union of Ontario, which is a progressive legal organization. Our job is to support people doing direct action, demonstrations, work for progressive social change, and to make sure that they're safe. It started for me in 1995 when I did legal defense around a mass arrest in San Francisco at a Mumia Abu-Jamal, who's a political prisoner in the United States demonstration. And then I sort of did it off and on. In the early 2000s, I was living in New York City, and I became the membership coordinator, which is like an organizer for the National Lawyers Guild, which is a radical left-wing legal organization in the state. And I also at that point joined the New York City People's Law Collective. There was a whole period of legal collectives, which were collectives of legal workers, lawyers, and also activists that started in Seattle with the protests in 1999 when they founded the Midnight Special Law Collective and continued into other cities where we did work around the global justice movement and other movements. I also was a member of the New York City Mass Defense Committee, kind of like the Movement Defense Committee, but in the United States. And from that time until now, when I moved back to Toronto in 2004, I joined the Common Front Legal Collective, which was the legal collective founded along the same lines in Toronto. And then later that kind of morphed into the Movement Defense Committee, which is what I'm a part of now. That was in around 2007, 2008. So Common Front Legal Collective, which was really our precursor, like the group before us, was founded during the anti-globalization period. And it was very much a collective of activists as well as legal workers. What we started to find was a lot of the activists were getting more busy with doing the organizing and didn't necessarily have the time or energy to add into doing the legal defense, the legal support work. So we decided instead to become a committee of the law union and really focus on getting legal workers, mainly law students and lawyers in the committee. Now, we've rethought that more recently and realized that we need actually to go back to getting more activists involved. And we've done that more recently in the Movement Defense Committee because the legal workers, the law students and the lawyers have the skills, at least some of them have the time, but they don't always have the same connection to movements that activists have. So we're trying to reconnect with movements by having more activists now on the committee. What does the Law Union of Ontario do beyond this specific committee? The Law Union has done a lot of work. They've been around since the 60s. They were founded during a very heavy period for social justice and originally were founded as a progressive and socialist legal organization. And that's actually still, I believe, our person date, our mandate. It's lawyers, a lot of lawyers, a lot of law students, some legal workers, and They've done amazing work around things like racial profiling. I think they had a real pivotal role in fighting carding in Toronto, which is a form of racial profiling where the police can collect personal data, usually based on whether you're black or not. 
They've got an immigration legal committee that I'm on that's done amazing work around spreading know your rights information for people without status. They've done huge amounts of work around labor justice work, around feminist work, around human rights work, lots of human rights work, lots of stuff around civil liberties. They're different though than a civil liberties organization in that they are very much a progressive organization. So for example, in the Movement Defense Committee, we very much see ourselves as part of the movement. And I would say that that's true for the law union as a whole. How does the Movement Defense Committee find the progressive and radical lawyers and legal workers that comprise its membership? When we switched it from the Common Front Legal Collective to the Movement Defense Committee, it was lawyers and myself as a legal worker who were right there at the beginning. And the way that we brought more people in is the Law Union of Ontario has two major events every year. They have a conference that's very, very good that we usually do a workshop at. They also have an annual general meeting. And at both those, we would sign up members to join. But more widely, we would also hold and still hold legal observer training, where we train people to come to demonstrations to provide legal support, usually law students, but sometimes lawyers. We also recruit, we have a number of criminal lawyers who are members of things like the Criminal Bar Association and other criminal lawyer organizations, which recruit through there. And then I think our biggest recruitment drive was during the G20, when we dealt with over a thousand arrests. Before that, we were able to recruit a lot of local lawyers. Our general policy with lawyers is that we provide free release hearings for people. So if people are arrested, we call the division to try and get them out. And if not, we provide a free lawyer for the release hearing. And then we try and provide either what I call low bono, which is like lower cost lawyers or legal aid lawyers, or on very rare occasions, pro bono lawyers to assist people through the trial. We also put law students, legal workers, and lawyers and activists on the street as legal observers to track when people are arrested, to watch for police misconduct, and to make sure that when people are arrested, we can get them in touch with our phone line, which is on at almost every major demonstration in the city, at the other end of which is a lawyer who can give people free legal advice and information. And we also hand out, we have a Know Your Rights flyer that tells people their basic rights at demonstration and includes the phone number so that they know what they can and can't do legally when they're at the demonstration. So I definitely want to hear more about the work that the committee does during more ordinary periods in Toronto, but maybe talk initially about the roles the committee played during the protests against the G20 summit that was held in the city in 2010. During the G20, as you probably know, it was quite a big deal. There was tens of thousands of people out on the streets. There was some quite lovely contentious things happening on the streets. A certain amount of alleged property destruction. A number of our people were hurt. I don't think a single police officer was hurt and about 1,000 to 1,100 arrests, including some very serious arrests around conspiracy to commit mischief, which were a number of the organizers. We set up a full law office with lawyers on call. We had three phone lines going at any time for the streets for people to call in if they saw a friend arrested or if they were arrested themselves to call in from the jail, as well as a phone line for family and friends to call in to try and get updates on people who had been arrested. We fielded over 100 legal observers a few of whom were actually arrested in some of the mass arrests. And we provide legal support for the vast majority of people arrested, including the, I think it was 12 or 13 who were arrested on the conspiracy charges. We found each one of them, a law union lawyer, assist them in fighting those charges. We did follow-up afterwards. We did forums. Prior to the demonstrations, we did Know Your Rights trainings where we told people what their legal rights were. It was quite an interesting and exciting time. And in more normal moments in Toronto, what do the core activities of the committee look like? So last couple of weeks, we've had a number of demonstrations. We are pretty much, with a few exceptions, almost always able to get the phone line on. 
and let the organizers know that number in case someone's arrested. We usually can get one or two, if not more, legal observers out to be on the streets tracking arrests, looking for police misconduct. Because we see ourselves as part of the movement, we're not neutral observers. We're not like civil liberties folks who are there to observe police misconduct as well as misconduct potentially on the side of the activists. We're there to watch from police misconduct and to make sure that if people are arrested, that they get proper legal support and representation. So we go, we take notes on police misconduct. If people are arrested, we try to get their name. We try and find out who was a witness to the arrest, if that's suitable. And we try and find out if there's an emergency contact that we can get a hold of to help them to post their bail if they need to. From there, our lawyers then call into the station to see if they can negotiate the people's release from the police station. And if not, our lawyers show up the next day to the hearing with the bail people, the sureties, if there are some. And we generally have a fairly good success rate of getting people out, if not the night of the demonstration, the next day. In the follow-up to that, we assist people in organizing themselves if there's arrests. Collectively, we prefer, so like if there's 10, 12 arrests, we help people to organize a defense committee. We have lawyers at those meetings so that they can all be together because they're often told by the courts that they can't associate after the arrest. We facilitate those meetings and we try and refer them to good movement lawyers. We've been able to do this not only in Toronto, though I shouldn't make any promises here on the air, but we've also been able to do it in areas outside of Toronto, such as Hamilton, some of the Indigenous protests at Six Nations and other areas. We have contacts within our committee with human rights lawyers, with immigration counsel, such as myself, with youth lawyers, like people defend young offenders, with people who do Indigenous law and Gladio Court, which is a special procedure in court set up for Indigenous people. We try and do the best we can. Sometimes we don't have the capacity, but we try and do the best we can. Right now, we're working actually on developing a legal dictionary. One of our members has done a lot of work on this that will try and help people to understand legal terms in more clear and plain English. We are called to go to every demonstration. Our general policy is you have to contact us and tell us that you want us at the demonstration, what you need, and then we tell you what we can provide. So not everybody knows about us. Not everybody contacts us. But I'd say we usually do four or five demonstrations a month. Some of those demonstrations, there's no calls. Like I go to a lot of demonstrations where the only calls the legal line gets is me making sure that the phone's on before the demo and then me calling the phone line at the end of the demo to let them know that everything's okay. Sometimes, I mean, we had 12 or 14 arrests last December at the Bannon demo. Uh, That's a reference to the protest outside last fall's Monk debate in Toronto where neoconservative commentator and former George W. Bush speechwriter David Frum debated white nationalist and former Trump administration staffer Steve Bannon. There's been a lot of anti-fascist demonstrations against some of these terrible fascist groups that have arisen in Toronto, and we've had arrests at those because for some reason the police feel it's more appropriate to arrest the anti-fascist demonstrators than the uh, fascists themselves. So I guess hate speech isn't that big a deal for them. So we've had a number of arrests at those over the last year and a half. But often with demonstrations, it's just quiet. We're there, we monitor, we have the phone on, and we don't end up having to do anything. Sometimes we will provide support in negotiating with the police, and sometimes we will provide legal information to an organization before a demonstration around issues that they're concerned about. When people are arrested at demonstrations, what kinds of charges do they generally end up facing? Sometimes it's as simple as trespass. So, for example, you go into the parliament... You hold up a banner in the Parliament Gallery protesting something. Sometimes they'll just escort you out. Sometimes they'll charge you with trespass. We had one of those charges recently in an OCAP demo where people poured dirt in front of Troy's office. 
Uh, OCAP is the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, and Tory is John Tory, Mayor of Toronto. The protest, the fact that he's not willing to expropriate property to open up social housing. Sometimes there might be an alleged scuffle at a demonstration and people get charged with assault or assault police. During the G20, we had a number of people allegedly involved in property damage who are charged with mischief. That is the biggest demo we've ever dealt with, even during the Common Front Day. We have the organizers charged with conspiracy to commit mischief. That's probably the most serious stuff we've seen. I mean, again, you have to understand Toronto policing. It's very much predicated on things like race and class. So we did have people charged at one demonstration that was primarily students of color from the University of Toronto were charged with forcible confinement for doing an occupation. But usually the charges are not that serious. And when people are facing charges of whatever sort, what's your sense of the importance of mobilizing political support for them and political pressure on the system, as opposed to just letting the system do its thing? So I do a lot of immigration work. And what I've realized over the years is that a lot of what we claim as legal victories are often actually movement victories. And what happens is, for better or for worse, it gets won in the courts after years of mobilization by movement. And what lawyers often don't say, except our movement lawyers, is that you can't win these cases without mobilization. A famous case would be the right to choice for women around abortion, where you can look at history and you can say, well, it was because Morgenthaler was won in the Supreme Court. Uh, Henry Morgenthaler was a doctor who provided abortion services outside of the restrictive legal framework then in place, and his name is on the case that resulted in its complete decriminalization in 1988. Or you can look at it and say, well, there was also mobilization going on long before it went into the court. Morgenthaler himself basically committed civil disobedience by doing abortions as declared illegal during that period. Women organized in masses around pro-choice. And so for the lawyers to claim that victory is actually rewriting history in basically a, a, it's a, a lying way. Other cases, Bedford around sex worker rights, that was sex workers organizing for decades. The gains that we've had around immigration detention in the last five years are mainly because 191 people at the Central East Correctional Center in Lindsay went out on hunger strike and continued to organize after that inside the jails. For me, at the end, it's about what lesson do you want to teach? You want to teach that a really smart, cool, nice lawyer can win things, which is not actually usually true. Or do you want to teach that by mass mobilization, by direct action, by people taking to the streets, occupying offices, whatever it takes, we can win. One builds towards glorification of the individual. The other builds towards the fact that if we organize, we can completely overthrow and change the society. What are the core political principles that guide the work of the Movement Defense Committee? So we have a few principles. One is, and I've said this before, but we see ourselves not as a neutral civil liberties organization, but as embedded in the movement. We go by the principles of, it's, this is an old thing, but the People's Global Action Committee, the People's Global Action, which was an anti-capitalist, anti-patriarchy, anti-colonialist, anti-feudalist organization formed around the world by grassroots groups in the 2000s. We believe in affirmative action. So when we have a protest, if you're a black person, if you're a trans person, if you're a person who's visibly believed to be homeless, we're going to prioritize your case over someone who's a white, middle-class, cis male who gets arrested. We also try to embody anti-oppression politics in our group and in our politics. Of course, like any group, we make mistakes on that. We're hopefully constantly learning. And we try to follow the direction of the movement, 
We also don't believe that we should be dictating the tactics of the movement. So we're not going to walk into a room and say, you have to get a permit to do a demonstration. Instead, we're going to say, well, this is what happens if you get a permit. This is what happens if you don't get a permit. You guys decide what works better with your politics, and we'll tell you what the legal ramifications are of each one. Oh, and we operate by consensus, and we're pretty much a collective. What are the key things that you wish activists and organizers and other participants in movements understood about the legal system that we often don't? Number one, the system is packed against us. And in some ways, we're in better shape because we're organized, we have support, we usually have wide social communities than, you know, individual black people, people of color who have to get screwed over by the system every day. Not that those people don't also have their own social communities and support, but they just don't get the same kind of privilege sometimes that we face. That said, if we really seriously challenge the state, the state comes down hard. What I would say is that the key to dealing with the system is not a legal defense. The key is solidarity, that people should go into these, especially into a high-risk demonstration, already having talked to people about what the risks are, having gotten the legal information so they know what the potentials are and figuring out how to protect each other within the system. The lawyers can do a certain amount to protect people, and we will because we're part of the movement, but the main thing is people protecting each other. I'll give an example. We had 12, 13 arrests at the Bannon demo last December, and the police wanted to release them from the station and offered a number of conditions, including some really nasty conditions. These are release conditions that Mac is talking about, which police often use to impose severe and arbitrary limits on people's activities when they're initially released from custody until the charges are ultimately disposed of one way or another. Our lawyers, and I was part of this, said, you should just take the conditions and we'll fight it later. The people on the inside said, no, we're just going to stay in here together and we're going to stay here until they release us without these conditions. And they were right. They got released without the conditions. They all got released together. They all took care of each other. And it was a really good sign of how solidarity is your best legal defense. In general terms, how do you think movements should respond to repression from the police and the legal system? You can turn a mass arrest into a tool for the movement. I actually have been arrested myself at demonstrations probably 30 or 40 times. I can't keep track. And it is not only a survivable situation, and again, I'm saying this as a white cis male, so it's different for other people who are more targeted by the system. But you can get through it, and it not only can be a survivable situation, but can be actually an empowering situation. Often I've seen our movement turn a mass arrest into an organizing potential. So the court dates become a chance to hold rallies and press conferences. A creative legal strategy can be used to get media on the issues at hand instead of just on the actual court, but on the initial thing that we were protesting or resisting. It can be actually very creatively used. And I would also say, I mean, as a legal professional, I can't advise people to break the law, of course. But I would say that I don't think much in history has been won without people, A, asserting their rights, and B, creating an actual situation where they make a challenge to power, where they shut down business. We look at any historical struggle that's won, be it civil rights, be it LGBTQI struggles, be it pro-choice. None of these were won without people taking risks and taking direct action. And that we can actually do that and get processed by the system and get repressed and still come out of it stronger. Related to that, one of the debates that often comes up in movements is between, on the one hand, the opportunity that engaging with the legal system provides for mobilization versus the ways it can drain energies from other movement priorities. How do you encourage people to think about that tension? Well, Scott, I think that's actually a very real live issue that you've named. 
And I don't think there's a simple answer. I can give you my perspective. I would say that after 30 odd years of doing this, I don't know that I actually have the answer to that. But I do think a lot of it's turning on its head. When we do movement work, we don't always think about this, but we're building relationships. And we can either build relationships that we come out of feeling good, even when there's conflict, for example, or we can build relationships which we come out of feeling bad. And what I've seen the most debilitating, the most nasty outcome of a situation of legal repression, and I've been through a lot of mass arrests, is where someone takes a plea, for example, without checking in with the other defendant. They don't follow solidarity. They do what they think is best for them, maybe even what's best for the movement, but they do in a way where they don't actually check in with others. Or someone gets in and the movement just is too busy and leaves them to deal with it. And we have had this happen in groups that I've been in. And that person usually will end up leaving. But I've seen the flip side. There was a squad of a house in Ottawa. I forget what the demonstration was around, but it was a mass demonstration back about 10, 15 years. They organized collectively. They defended themselves. And they actually won the case. They did charter challenges. They did all their own legal work, and they came out of it as a strong crew ready to keep fighting. So I think the key is actually turning on its head. We have to remember that we have certain tools, and they have certain tools. They have clubs. They have guns. They have the ability to use oppression in the many forms against us. They have jails. They have borders. But we also have tools. We have solidarity. We have creativity. We have our love for each other. We have our ability to reach out into the community and be real people, not jerks. We have all these tools. And even under the most severe repression, when we use our tools and use them well, we can come out victorious. And looking to the future, what's coming up for the Movement Defense Committee? And also, what kinds of things would you like to see from movements in terms of capacity building and learning related to the legal system? Movements need to prioritize training, whether it's legal defense training or there's all sorts of trainings we need to do, anti-oppression training, facilitation training. But for us, if we can talk to groups beforehand and either help them organize their own legal support or help them organize legal trainings through us, people are better equipped if they go in better informed. If you contact us ahead of time, we can work together depending on our capacity, depending on what you need, and try and craft the best legal support possible for your action. Also, that said, legal support can be really useful for making sure that people stay involved. If people go through an arrest and feel like people have their back, they're much more likely to be at the next meeting, the next demonstration. So please talk to us. If you need a workshop, if you need the phone on, if you need legal observers, we'll do our best. In terms of moving forward, I would be excited to see other committees and collectives being set up in other cities, other communities. If they want to set up their own legal support committees or collectives, we would certainly support that. We could provide trainings and materials. We may even have contacts with lawyers to be able to get contacts with lawyers in those communities. You have been listening to my interview with legal worker McDonald Scott about the work of the Movement Defense Committee. To learn more about what they do, go to movementdefense.org or search for them on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.